the end. That's our new series. It ought to be a little interesting. It's really fun to be with you. This is our fourth All Radius Sunday of the year. And I thought I'd just share with you a few things that we are doing together. Certainly uh, lots of things are moving. All kind of parts are moving different directions. And we're going to celebrate that. If you want to put it on your calendar on May the 4th, we're going to gather at the amphitheater. All of Radius going to get together and celebrate what God's been doing and look forward into the future of what we're dreaming about him doing going forward. A lot of good things have been going on lately. I don't know if you know, Radius Irmo's moved into a new spot. They got a new location. It's much better than the last. They're excited about it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can check it out online and get connected with them. We're, we're praying that the Lord will send them more people as they, uh, as they move into this new spot. If, if you are, are uh, someone who gives here at Radius, you actually are helping paying the rent at, for Radius Irmo, which is kind of cool. Regardless of what campus you're at, we're doing this together. It's all Radius. Uh, this weekend passed, the student retreat went down. We had over 100 students go. Trey Sheely from out at Radius Saluda um, led it. Uh, Scott Schufer from over at Radius Southside, he preached at it. And we, we just, from all I hear, a great weekend where a variety of students make some pretty important decisions. And it was a good time for them with the Lord. Students, as you take this in right now, I just, I just want to say thanks for going on the trip. And those of you that didn't, you missed it. There's another one coming in the summer if you want to go to summer camp. We believe you are our future. And so uh, thanks for investing in God's word. And we anticipate that you'll be leading this place in, in, in not too long. Because Scott was at camp, I got to go over to Radio Southside and preach last week. I got to see uh, all the renovations that are underway. Again, if you give dollars somewhere all radius, then you're a part of that uh, renovation project down there. Thanks to Southside Baptist for giving us the facility. Obviously, that was this amazing gift. And then you guys, as we pool our money together, we actually are putting it right down there near South Carolina campus. And let me just tell you this, getting to stand up there and preach and look out and see a big group of college students down there really makes me excited and it should make you excited because they, they are our future. We've got college students that in not too long a time will be leading one of our campuses. And so we're really glad that they're starting to come to that campus and plug in. Can't wait to see what God does with them. So you should celebrate, celebrate that with me. Right now, back in some rooms outside of our auditoriums, Across all radius, there's like 500 children learning the Bible one way or another, learning the teachings of Jesus. We've got folks that are volunteering out of our body back there teaching our kids about Jesus, and they are our future. And I want to go ahead and tell you, I mean, there's all the doomsday stuff out there right now. I want to go ahead and tell you, when you see our kids and our high school kids and our college kids, the future is still bright. The Holy Spirit's still working in the next generation. And we anticipate that they will lead well no matter what the times are like. I've met with four different young guys in the past seven days. Uh, two, uh, three of them in their late 20s. Uh, one of them in his early 30s. All of them dreaming about leading a Radius Church one day. All guys that are preparing. They're preparing themselves to be able to lead others. It ought to excite you that God's uh, sending us young leaders for our future. And uh, it ought, I don't know, it just makes me really happy to watch him provide workers for the harvest. So 
the future looks good because of who God's got here. The future might be a little questionable when you watch the news at night. But I want to encourage you, we're going to keep doing this as we pass the baton from generation to the next generation. It's our job. May 4th, we'll get together and celebrate, so put it on your calendar. Can't wait to have that big all-radius celebration over in the amphitheater in Lexington. Hey, let me pray, and we're going to do the end series here for two Sundays. Father, I, you know you had me in this passage a few weeks ago, and it just seemed important for us to talk about. So I pray as we read your word and it, it washes over us that your spirit would work on us, Lord, each of us. That you would remind us of the end of all things, Christ, your return, and you would energize us by that good news that you're coming again. Pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak in our room to those who believe and don't believe. Folks that are wrestling with who you are, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convince them of Jesus, his work on this, on this earth, his death, his burial, resurrection, and pray that they with us could anticipate one day getting to see him face to face with great joy. We trust you with these minutes in Jesus' name. Amen. I had... Uh, the honor to go speak at my mom and dad's church two weeks ago. So right after he, we here at Radius, we went through Ephesians, and we had, one Sunday actually talked about honoring your father and mother. I got to go speak at my mom and dad's church, which for them, there's probably no way I can honor them more. My mom starts crying as soon as I start preaching. It doesn't matter how good or bad I am. I don't know if she's crying because bad or crying because good. She's just, she's proud, right? She's proud. And my dad glows. He's 80. He just turned 80. He glows as I talk, so it's, it's really, it's fun, and yet it's surreal, right? It's up in Anderson, South Carolina, Concord Community Church, a small church. It's the place I grew up. It's a place I learned God's word, and so it's, it's kind of like this, you know, I always remember being in the seats and, and learning stuff and taking stuff in. So at the little church I grew up at, um, we talked about the end all the time. As a matter of fact, when they asked me to come preach, they asked me to preach this passage, Mark chapter 13, which is about the end, which was really weird for me because so many Sundays and Sunday nights, I sat in that building and heard somebody uh, in this spot right here talk about the end. They would teach about Daniel and Revelation, and, and there's a couple passages in Thessalonians, and there's some other prophets in the Old Testament all talking about the end. We used to have this chart back up on the back wall, and as a kid, I'd look at this chart, and it had like these crazy-looking animals and all these images that was hard to explain, and, and, and they bring in a guy, and he teaches us all the way through the chart about the end. My dad was an engineer and a manager of, a, a, of Owens Corning Fiberglass, and on Sunday nights, sometimes he would teach. And I still remember him teaching through the book of Daniel, as a kid, when your dad's talking, man, you're just, you're just locked in because he's your dad, right? So he's, he's teaching uh, uh, as he's reading and learning about Daniel, about the end. And so it was like this, this major formative part of my development. As I read the word of God, there's this huge chunk devoted toward the end. And in particular for us as believers, if you know Jesus, his return. 
For years, I've shied away from it. The end of Revelation like weirds me out at times because there's so many images. It's hard for me to 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 get get up to. Actually, uh, one of our elders here, Lynn Keys, is like, "You're going to talk about the end times at Rayway? We don't do this a lot because uh, we often are focused on being active. And and some of this this little short series will do the same because I believe that the end forces us to have this urgency about us. As a matter of fact, in in Mark chapter 13, you're going to hear, "Stay alert." over and over and over as Jesus tells his disciples to stay alert for his return and the end. There's also this expectancy, this this excitement, because the disciples knew Jesus in real flesh, and they are, at the end, they were excited for the new end to come so that they could see him in the flesh again. And any time that a believer talks about this relationship with Jesus, there's this expectancy that we get to see him again. So at the little church I grew up at, well, we had it charted and we had our views on what we call eschatology or the end times. But maybe the thing that most impressed me was my, my grandfather. I don't know if you guys remember this. I'll stand on two generations of shoulders. My grandfather, Carl, my dad, Larry, and me. Some of you guys are in Carl's slot. And again, I just want to pat you on the back and go, please. Go for it. Your kids and your grandkids are dependent. My, my grandfather, when he would talk about he, the end times, he'd get emotional. He wasn't an emotional man. I don't ever remember him crying about me as a grandchild. He loved the Braves. I don't remember him ever crying when the Braves won or lost. There was just very little emotion out of the man. But when it came to talking about Christ's return, it moved him. He was expectant. He was excited about getting to see Jesus because in his 30s, he believed in Jesus and Jesus saved him from his sins and it changed the direction of my family. And he, he was so excited that the Jesus that he knew by faith, he was going to get to see face to face. And that's what I want for us. As we uh, talk about the end for two Sundays, We'll take Ephesians chapter, I mean Ephesians, uh, Mark chapter 13. We'll split it in half. We'll preach half of it this week and half the next week and then the following week's Easter. Pretty cool way to set up Easter. Talking about the end and then how death, burial, resurrection of Jesus prepares us for his return. So Mark, if you remember, we went through the book of Mark not too long ago. We skipped a few chapters. We skipped this one. Mark is the writer. A lot of people believe that he is being dictated to by Peter who walked with Jesus. And so a lot of his accounts are probably firsthand through Peter. And so he's telling these stories almost like he was there because he's hearing it from Peter. Let me read you the first couple verses of Mark chapter 13. As Jesus was leaving the temple that day, one of his disciples said, Teacher, Look at those magnificent buildings. Look at that that impressive stones in the walls. And Jesus replied, this is always interesting with Jesus. When you say something, you never know what's coming back. He says, yes, look at those great buildings. But they'll be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. So you can imagine one of the disciples just walking along inside the temple, admiring the place and just talking And Jesus comes back with this prophecy, this doomsday prophecy. And for those folks, there's no other way to view it than the end is near. Give you a little context. This is probably the Wednesday of Passion Week. So the disciples and Jesus are in Jerusalem. And this is probably that Wednesday 
uh, right before Jesus is going to be crucified on the cross. Uh, they're inside of a temple that Herod, Herod's family has been building. It won't be done for another 30 years, right? So it's, it c- is completed in 64 AD, and it's this massive, amaz- amazing architectural feat. It's actually known as one of the wonders of the world at that time. It's, it's uh, if I remember right, 12 football fields would fit inside of Herod's temple to the Jewish God, Yahweh. All right, so he built this temple, one, to... Um, have good feelings from the Jewish folks and also to do something as a memorial for himself and his family. So Herod builds this temple. It's amazing. It's made out of these massive white stones. And so I'm sure when the disciples look at up the stones, they're massive and they're beautiful and they're decorated with gold. And as he's pointing to the design of the temple, the disciples are probably in awe of the architecture and just enjoying it with Jesus. It took up a sixth of all of Jerusalem, the temple was that big. And then Jesus, Jesus hears this and he makes this prophecy that it's all going to be torn down. Now, remember the Sunday previous, we call it Palm Sunday. And we remember it uh, oftentimes uh, in, in a very happy way as Jesus comes into Jerusalem. But if you remember a little later in that day, he goes to the temple and he's infuriated by the abuse of folks in a religious way, collecting money in the temple. And so he's flipping tables. I love that because we get to see Jesus righteously angry. angry. He's flipping tables. You can just imagine him flipping them, and he's frustrated as he can be with the religious system. All this is written down in Mark chapter 11. And and now he's saying that that temple (laughs) that they were in is going to be torn down brick by brick to the ground. So for a Jewish kid, he remembers Jeremiah saying the same thing in Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, he, he also prophesied that the temple would be torn down by a foreign government. And sure enough, his prophecy came true. Jesus predicts it. And he, here we are, and we don't know exactly when Jesus prophesied this, but we would imagine somewhere around 30 A.D., maybe a little bit before. And by 70 A.D., Titus, the emperor of Rome, he's going to roll into town. And he's going to tear that temple all the way to the ground. (laughs) So literally, in their generation, the men who are hearing this prophecy, the the foreign government, the Roman-ruled government comes in, and because they're so frustrated with the Jewish people, they tear down that beautiful temple all the way to the ground, as, as well as all kind of buildings all throughout Jerusalem. And so... The disciples are hearing this in real time, not knowing that that's going to happen here in the future. And so they wait, like it's a good idea with Jesus, because you never know what the answer to some of his prophecies or questions might be. So they wait, and they get to the, they, they walk outside of the temple, and they walk through the Kidron Valley, and they walk up the Mount of Olives, and they're sitting on top of the Mount of Olives, and I, they're looking across the Kidron Valley, which would be about like 100 feet below them. Across the Kidron Valley would be Jerusalem, and the temple would be there. So they're looking across at it, and, and they ask these amazing questions that really helps us today. Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives across from the valley from the temple. And Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the first four disciples called by Jesus, came to him privately and asked him, tell us when will this happen and what sign will show us that these things are about to be fulfilled? Great questions. When? When's it all coming down? And what signs will we see so that we know that it's coming? 
I uh, particularly like when I read verse 3 and 4, thinking about this deep relationship that Jesus has forged over three years of walking with these four guys that he called right out of the beginning. So there's this deep relationship, and as they, they anticipate him being the king and are still trying to connect the dots of what his kingship would look like, they want to know when. When's the end, and when does your reign start? And Jesus replied, and his reply uh, is heavy. And so uh, I want it to feel heavy as I read it. Verse 5, Jesus replied, Don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. And you will hear wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. But the end won't follow immediately. Nations will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in many parts of the world as well as famines. But this is the, only the first of the birth pains with more to come. You've probably heard those verses, even if you haven't been to church much. People talk about the earthquakes and, and warring nations against one another. That those are the signs of the times that Jesus is going to come up. But that's not what he says. He actually says, that's just the beginning. Don't be deceived by that. Notice that he doesn't hand them like the Left Behind series and tell them when he's coming back. Instead, he maintains all the tension about his return and about the end. So they want to know about the walls coming down that he just prophesied in the temple, and Jesus allows the tension to stay. As a matter of fact, you, you might even say that he, he makes it less clear, that he, uh, by his answer, makes them more confused. Yeah, they, they leave this paragraph having no idea except that it's going to get crazy before the end comes. If you read, uh, have read the Bible much, you jump into the book of Revelation, you read from about chapter 5 to the end, it's just crazy. Like all kind of imagery that is really hard to process, for me at least. You get to Daniel, you have similar, and some guys get pretty excited about the imagery, and there, there's lots of, lots of talks and ideas about the imagery. But I read this, I heard this, and then read it this week, and I wanted to share it with us by a guy named Daryl Johnson. Not the fullback for the, for the Cowboys, the fullback for the Cowboys. I imagine he had too many concussions to write something like this. But nonetheless, like he's uh, looking at all the imagery of God in the Bible, and he, he makes this statement. It really helped me, and I thought, I thought he captured something for all of us. He says, imagery has the power to hook us deep inside. Images can quickly and effectively convey that which we struggle to put into words. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions into the imagination, grabbing hold of us at the deepest recesses of our being. Imagery goes beyond the intellect and through the emotions and into the imagination, informing the intellect and igniting our emotions. thought that was really good. As you read the end of Revelation, you read through the book of Daniel, you read just these few verses that Jesus is interacting with the disciples, it seems by design that for the church, for us, for the disciples of Jesus, there was supposed to be this tension of the unknown of when the end was going to come and this expectation or excitement about when he's going to return. Every generation has thought Jesus was going to return while they were on the earth. I, I don't know how much you've read the Bible, but Paul thought he was coming back while he was living. Certainly these disciples, as they heard it, wondered if he would come back before they died. 
man, when I was a kid, my parents read this book called The Late Great Planet Earth, which predicted that Christ would come during their generation. And then while I was in college, somebody wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Comes in 1988. Obviously, they were wrong, right? Like, like there's book after book after book, the Left Behind series that made millions and millions of dollars. Some of y'all have told me about some book called The Harbinger. Of course, he's got it all figured out, and it's been time after time after time. But perhaps the images in the Bible that are hard to understand were put there to get us focused in an expectant kind of way that he's coming back. Now, I've got no problem with studying what we call eschatology. In our rooms, and you might not know where you stand, I'm going to use a couple words you've never heard of, and I won't give them a ton of definition. Some of you uh, probably grew up being premillennial. That's how I grew up. That would be your view of how Christ is coming down. It's just a system. It's put together by a guy named John Darby. Actually came from the little denomination I grew up in. That's why we were so into it. Premillennial, and, and we were pre-tribulation. So like that, those two went together. And you could be post-trib, mid-trib, pre-trib. So that's one side. And then a bunch of you grew up on the other side. They're amillennial. And they're, they, they basically laugh at each other based on their systems. One time I'm in a car growing up being pretty hardcore. Remember, I'm looking at charts when I'm 12 on my wall, learning what being a premillennialist is. I'm driving in this car. I'm in the back seat. There's three believing guys in the car with me. And they are laughing their tails off at people that are premillennial. This is how weird some of my childhood was. But, but they're laughing about people that would have the view that there's a rapture and Christ will come back, in, in, which we call, uh, in, in that moment, we call premillennialism. Our millennials believe he's coming back too. So everybody agrees he's coming back. But they're laughing at me. They don't know where I stand. And I'm sitting there going, I've been in another car laughing at them. This is the weirdest thing. Godly men on both sides of the aisle on this discussion about when's Jesus coming back. The end times, eschatology. In that moment, there's this humility that started to come over me going, man, this thing is pretty unknown. And uh, we both agree he's coming back. As a matter of fact, somebody asked me, what's radius view? I'm like, Jesus is coming back. We all agree, Jesus is coming back. There's this deep question that I have about it that's not real intellectual. Are we excited that he's coming back? Are we expectant that he's coming back? It troubles me that we have it all figured out on the chart, but we're more excited about having it figured out than actually seeing him again. Cheryl and I were dating. She lived in Kansas. I was from South Carolina. I got this flight out. I hadn't seen her in three or four months. I got this flight into uh, Kansas City uh, Airport. Uh, like, I love that airport. It's a terrible airport, but I love that airport because of what happened. I flew in. I landed. And as I came up the gate where they used to allow you, I know this is shocking to some of you, allow you to come up and meet whoever you're meeting right when you get off the plane. So as I'm coming up the up the ramp into the, into the little lobby area. I'm looking around for Cheryl, and there she is. I can remember. I'm 54. I was probably 20 then. I can remember exactly what she was wearing. I can remember what her hair looked like. I mean, she was wearing this green sleeveless dress, and I mean, I was stunned by her beauty, right? 
<laughs> and then she had done something new with her hair, and so I'm staring at her hair. I, I'm sure I looked like lost because I'm trying to gather myself as I'm walking toward her to get the best hug of my life to date, right? So for four months being apart, she'd been writing me these letters. And man, when Cheryl writes a letter, it's like 12 pages long. I, everything I could do to write one page back. We're writing back and forth, and I'm learning about her life away, and I'm learning about her. She puts it to pen. I'm, I've already, I already knew her in person, but we're getting to know each other through mail from a distance. And when I saw her again, it was, it was terrific. What if I had got off the plane, seen Cheryl across the lobby, and when I saw her, pulled out all my, pulled out all my letters and like, look. I got it all figured out. I knew I was going to be right. I knew I had it figured out when I was going to see her. Let me, that'd be the dumbest thing ever. I should just run to her. I didn't run. I was stunned. And go grab her and hug her and enjoy her and all the expectancy that came through the study of the love letters was fulfilled in that moment. That's coming from me and you, if you know Jesus. We're going to get to see him. And it's going to blow our minds. So I'm, I'm all for studying eschatology. Like I think whether you're pre-mill or ah-mill and you can have those conversations. If that's leading you to being expectant, excited about seeing Jesus, it makes a ton of sense. Just spend a lot of time studying those things. Check out verse 9. When these things begin to happen, watch out. Again, our phrase, be alert. We'll spend a bunch of time on next week. You'll be handed over to the local councils and beaten in the synagogues. You'll stand trial before governors and kings because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. For the good news must first be preached to all the nations. And when you are arrested and stand trial, don't worry in advance about what to say. Just say what God tells you at that time. For it is not you that will be speaking but the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful, simple phrase that the disciples are going to experience in real time. You know it. Jesus dies, buried, resurrected. Forty days later, ascends into heaven, and they go to work, and this is exactly what happens to them. And quite honestly, if you know church history, it's been happening for 2,000 years. We live in the United States of America, so if there's any hint of persecution, we start talking about Jesus returning. And the folks in China that, that are believers, they are chuckling because they've been persecuted since the day they believe. This is all they know. Their families have been torn apart. Their fathers have turned them in to the local authorities. It's craziness. The church has been suffering since the very beginning, and she's suffering right now. If you could imagine, in Jerusalem, uh, three great preachers of our time, three guys I like. You might have different. I, I really like, I like to read John Piper, his sermons. Tim Keller's kind of my go-to now. Tony Evans used to be my go-to. They're, they're all 70s. They've been preaching for a long time, so they've been steady. They've been with this. But what if tonight on the news, you flip on the news and up in, in Minnesota, John Piper is being taken out by the authorities in front of his church and shot dead. And then Tony Evans over in Dallas has the same experience. And then we flip up to Tim Keller in New York City, and they do the same thing to, to Tim Keller in New York City. That's what's happening in Jerusalem. 
They're being persecuted. Their leaders are being executed for their faith. That's what they know. And what's, what's Jesus saying? He's saying the end's coming. He's saying I'm coming back. But the church will have to suffer. If you don't know this about the church or about Jesus, suffering is a part of God's strategy to save the world. <laughs> we, we set out bread and juice every Sunday. You got it in the back and in the front of your room probably. When you come and take that bread and juice, we literally, as Christians, we celebrate the sufferings of our Lord on the cross every Sunday. It's core to who we are. It's core to who we, the church, have been as a people. And so when it comes to suffering, it's how he saved us. It's how he saved the world. And then it's also how he sanctifies us or trains us. I don't know about you, but I've learned more in the hard times than I ever learned in the good times. I really enjoy the good times. I'm not asking to have hard times, but the hard times train me. And sometimes that's brought on by my clear testimony of belief in Jesus, which would be persecution. And sometimes it's just how life goes. And the Lord teaches when we think about the end, we certainly, as the church, anticipate there will be suffering. The, the next verses actually would show us even intense suffering. Verse 14 introduces this interesting idea. It says, the day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes de desecration. Other translations say that different, but he's, he's prophesying that the temple's going to be desecrated. 167 years B.C., before Christ, the Syrian ruler came into the temple and he uh, established an altar over the altar to Yahweh, to Zeus, and he sacrificed a pig on it. <laughs> he totally uh, desecrated the temple that, so that no one could come in and worship, so it became vacant. 70 A.D., when they tore the temple down, the zealots brought this guy in. His name was Fanny, at least my pronunciation. And they appointed him the high priest. He wasn't qualified, and he began to execute uh, sacrifice on the, cross, uh, on the uh, altar. He defiled the temple so that no one could worship in there. It literally happened in 70 A.D. when they tore the temple down. And what does he say to the people? When that happens, then those in Judea must flee to the hills, a person out on the deck of the roof, must not go down to the house to pack. A person out in the field must not return to get his coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter, for there will be greater anguish in those days than at any other time since God created the world. And it will never be so again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days. Again, as we read it, we got folks that read those and they kind of put it in different camps. Some of it, to me, as I read it, I, I certainly can see the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem and, and then the, the deep sacrifices that the people of God made during that time. But I also can see a time coming forward. It's hard to see. It's, it's written in a way where it's not completely clear which puts this tension back on us as believers. He goes on to say, Then if anyone tells you, look, here's the Messiah, there he is, don't believe him. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform signs and wonders so as to deceive, if possible, even, God's chosen, even to deceive God's chosen ones. And then finally, verse 23, watch out, be alert. 
I have warned you about this ahead of time. I told you, the end is coming. Be alert and be ready for the suffering that's at hand. How do you think the American church, how do you think radius, how, how we stack up if suffering and persecution really came, if it looked like it looks in other parts of the world right now, how will we do? How do we do with the COVID test? <laughs> not, the, not the one you stick up your nose, the COVID test. The church certainly was tested by COVID. In, in the United States, Lots of churches emptied out over the course of time. Sure, some folks, we, we were wise for a season and separated so that people would be safe. But then it seems as if it pruned us. Like there's a lot of folks that never came back. It, it tested us. Some were dominated by fear during that season. And that fear actually kept them from gathering. And that fear actually pushed them deeper inside of themselves instead of toward Christ. It tested them and, and many failed and, and some, some did not. Others were tested by the mask themselves. There's this deep pride among the believers in our country where like they wouldn't actually come to a gathering if you had to wear a mask because you're so proud. You cared more about what the government did than it, you cared about being with other believers. It's really weird. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle on. The COVID test was massive for the church. It helped us look at ourselves. Hopefully, even right now, while I'm talking about it, you're going, how did I handle that test? That's all it was. Certainly pruned the church from both sides politically. One, one side probably more because of fear and frustration with the church for not taking more precautions. And the other side, just out of straight pride, where where just cannot be patient with anybody other than the person that holds their view. And so, so we divided over daggum disease, not persecution. wonder how we do when the real thing hits. We're going to... Wave our political flags? Are we going to wave the, the flag of the kingdom of God and represent him in the worst times? I don't know if we'll see it. Hopefully not. Hopefully our kids don't see it. Hopefully our grandkids don't see the worst of times. Who knows? But the church throughout history has endured with expectation. They haven't run away from pandemics. They've run to them. They've, they've stayed and died with their fellow man to serve them, to represent Christ to the very end because of this expectant view of getting to meet Jesus so death just doesn't scare us like everybody else. It doesn't have the same sting. That's why on Easter we're going to celebrate because of what he did by defeating death. He put us in a def, different position so that we're not dominated by fear. And he also set up this kingdom that has no rival, there is no government, there is no form of government that touches the kingdom of God and its purity. And so he wants us to start by proclaiming his name and his ways with more passion than we do anything else, with more time, with more of our intellect than anything else to lead our neighbors to himself. My oldest kid, Isaiah, when he was three years old, I bought him a little tyke's gold. And we started working on his form. I was not a basketball player, not a very good one for sure. And I wanted him to be one. He was a lefty. I was so excited about having a lefty. And so we'd work 
and work and work. Now, I, I know this is weird. He, he may not even been three. We would get his elbow in on the little tights goal, and, and in my house, he would shoot shoot on his goal. And anytime we had company, I'd be like, Isaiah, show him how you, how you shoot. And he gets his elbow in real nice, and he'd shoot, and we work on that shot and the finish. That's easy for me on the right side. But nonetheless, he, he's working it and working it, and for years, we worked on his game. He finally made a varsity team. Sorry, Zay. His junior year, and uh, he didn't get to play much. At night, I'll be so frustrated after a game that he didn't get to play. I was just into it too much. Dads, some of y'all are there right now. Like it was just too important to me. I, I literally had to journal to God. I'm, I'm sorry for this being so important to get it off my mind. Nonetheless, he, he, he kept getting better. And by senior year, he had a great year. And then his sister made the varsity team. And then his younger brother made the varsity team. We, so 13 years in a row, we had a varsity basketball player. We had some kids cut at times, but we always had one there. We had kids never play. We had kids play sparingly. We had kids play all the time. We had all that. We had kids get robbed by the ref. Of course, I'm not the quietest fan in the world. And we had coaches that coached great, and we had coaches that struggled to coach. We had all of it, just like everybody else does. But 13 years in a row, we had a kid on the varsity basketball team until last year. It was our last year. Malachi was a senior. We had never gotten... Uh, too deep in the playoffs other than one year where we got to the final eight. So last year, Malachi's team at River Bluff gets into playoffs, and uh, we drive down, as I remember, and I could have this wrong, to Fort Dorchester the first round, and we blow their doors off. It was awesome. I was shocked. I just didn't know we were that good. We blew their doors off. And then we went up, maybe it's Cane Bay. I can't remember, somewhere toward Myrtle Beach. We played them, and we blew their doors off. I'm like, well, you know, we're going we're gonna to go to the lower state finals. And so lower state championship was held right here in Lexington, and Dutch Fork came over to play us. It went down to the final seconds, and we went in the final seconds. And all of a sudden, after 13 years, really after 28 years of training kids to play basketball, I have a kid in the dream position. We're at the state championship. So we drive, all five sons, we all go together. We sit together on the front row down there at USC Aiken. They tip the ball within the first three minutes. A ball comes off the back of the rim. And my kid, Malachi Reeves, who's never ducked in a game in his life, catches the ball off the rim and hammer, almost dunks it. <laughs> and it goes flying up in the air. And we all looking up and down the aisle like, What? what's going on? And, and he played well. The whole team played well. Miles Jenkins went off in that game, and we beat the perennial-flavored Dorman for the state championship last year. It was, it was surreal. It was amazing. And I just need to tell you that it just got on us so fast. I feel like we were at Fort Dorchester, and then all of a sudden we're playing for the state championship and celebrating in the lobby trying to buy T-shirts, and it just happened like that. It was over. The end, and we realized what we were hoping for. It was a party. We went to Buffalo Wild Wings. We sat, we joyed. We told all the stories of all those years of practicing and running. It was a family victory. As we watched baby brother win the state championship, that is what's coming for us. We're going to see it in the full, and it ain't going to be long. Every generation is thought so. Let me read you a couple verses as we quit. Titus 2.13, we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. 
what? We're looking forward to a wonderful day. We're going to say, oh, my God, the right way. It's going to be, oh, my God, with great reverence and expectation and overwhelmed way of saying it as we see Jesus in the full. First Corinthians makes that more clear, 13, 12. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we'll see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God now knows me completely. One day we're going to know him for the full, to the full, and it ain't going to be nothing like a state championship. It ain't going to be nothing like seeing your girlfriend in the airport. It's going to be to the full. It's going to overwhelm all of your senses. You're not going to be able to hold yourself together when you see Jesus. It's going to be that good. Don't let your hearts be troubled, John 14. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If there were not so, I would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am. I'll be with Jesus in his father's house and we are going to be at rest. Revelation 20, 20, next to last verse in the Bible. He who is faithful witness to all these things says, it's in red print, Jesus saying it. Yes, I am coming soon. Last letter he left for us, he says, I am coming soon. And so you and I, 2,000 years later, where is he? We're supposed to read that again. And as he says, yes, I'm coming soon, Revelation ends like this. Amen, come Lord Jesus. You can say it where you sit right now. Amen, come Lord Jesus. I know I got stuff still to do on this planet. But when I'm really expecting the amazing meeting between me and the Lord, I can put all that aside and look forward to his return and even the end. Every Sunday we take the Lord's Supper. It's uh, what we do at Radius. I'm excited for you to get to take it. Jesus asked us to do this in remembrance of him, and so we do it. We literally do it every week. Bread and juice. 1 Corinthians 11, talking about this uh, sacrament, some call it. Some folks call it an ordinance. This thing the church has been carrying on for 2,000 years. Right in the passage where he says, do this in remembrance of me, me the 1 Corinthians 11:26 says this. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. One day, we ain't going to do this no more. We do it week after week after week in remembrance of what he did. One day, we're going to meet him and know him in the full, and there will be no need to remember his death anymore because we're going to know him in the full. That's who we are as believers. That's what we're looking forward to. I'm glad to be looking forward to it with you, Jesus Thank you for your word and the way you were clear with the disciples that you were going to return. You know us, Lord, it's a little scary when we hear about the end. Certainly even in this simple passage in Mark, some of the things that go down are intimidating. And they make us wince. Remind us this morning, create this excitement in us about your return because we'll get to see you and know you in the full. You'll make us complete. 
when we get to see you someday. We agree with Revelation, Lord. We agree with John as he wrote and quoted you. We want to say with him, come, Lord Jesus, come. Even as we sing now, help our attitudes and our hearts sing in a way that anticipates your return. Come, Jesus. Free us completely. We love you. We pray in your great name. Amen.